Hello and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davis from Beyond Solitaire and I'm here with... Jason Perez from Shelf Stories and One Stop Co-op Shop. Yo, my peoples, what's up? And uh, we are together again. We just decided to lay down some recordings. It's been too long, so we just got together and we're... We're having a good time chatting. We started up, Liz. Today. We started up. We've, we a couple of games have you know kind of passed by our tables. It's been a month. It's been two months. It's like okay, wait a minute. We got to uh, just clear the clear the deck over here. <laughs> we got a whole morning clear. Let's make let's make it happen. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about two different games that are I think very good and very interesting. Um, and one of them is Land and Freedom by Alex mm-hmm. Knight. It's a game about the Spanish Civil War. That's semi co-op. We'll get into more details about that. And then there is also uh, Stonewall Uprising by Taylor Schuss. It is published by Catastrophe Games, mm-hmm. and it is about gay civil rights in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. Uh, um, these are all kind of in the, the Catastrophe Games, Blue Panther LLC. They're kind of linked and everything. Uh, and they're, I guess, print-on-demand games. Uh, yeah. the, the, the component quality is not like super high. And, you know, these are very, um, you have to go directly to the website in order to get them and, you know, don't expect like lavish productions. So one of the things we want to talk about um, in terms of that together is just, you know, this is an effort to make historical gaming more accessible. There are so many kind of inaccessible war games and war gaming and historical gaming is coming from a tradition. We talked about this in the last episode um, of, inaccessibility and heightened you know, you know this only uh the most intelligent people can play these uh and these are efforts to make things way more accessible and they approach it in a certain way in their own ways uh so we'd love to talk about both they're both a very interesting very offbeat uh historical time frames so yes. uh, which one do you want to do first land yeah else do land of freedom all right uh so I'll, I'll i'll go to the description so land of freedom is um the uh spanish civil war in the 1930s so in the high level uh, this is the time pre-World War II where fascism is running, running supreme and uh, Spain is it, under threat of falling to the forces of German Relisimo Franco, backed by you know the, the German fascists and the Italian fascists and everything. Uh, so that's kind of the looming threat of, uh, over the game. Um, but the, the actual um, political situation that is depicted is three different factions. This game is for one to three players. And you're playing one of these three factions. So you have the uh, moderates, who are your, you know, ye old, you know, people that are running the country, allied with the, you know, the free U.S. And everything. Uh, you have your communists, which are allied with the Soviet Union, and you have your anarchists, which are the the game kind of uh, will give you the sense that like kind of ground up movements that are trying to, you know, undo a lot of the government stuff, collectivize the land, you know, uh, people that want to just kind of have the land for themselves. So you have these three factions, and that's what the game does. It's trying to evoke that sense of like, okay, there are these three factions, they're not aligned, they're all jockeying for position, but in the context of this looming fascist threat. Yes. So mechanically, it is a competitive slash cooperative game. It's called semi-co-op or whatever term you want to use. I find those terms a little bit slippery, confusing, but really what they're getting at is there are these two goals they are trying to accomplish in Land of Freedom. So in terms of the cooperative, there's one side of the board that's a map of Spain. And there are areas, uh, four areas, and they can go either under collective control or fascist control. So every round, you're going to have an event card. Event card's going to attack an area or attack multiple areas. And the um, the players have to decide how much of my, am I going to devote to the common defense 
and how much am I going to devote to my own uh, progress? So the common defense is, you know, uh, it's like, it's, it's like a, a, area or like um, a track thing. It's basically a track. So it's like, okay, how many little helmets <laughs> from the fascists and how many little helmets from the collective defense of the, the Spanish. Uh, so that's right. a back and forth and you have to figure out how much how many resources you want to commit there. Uh, and then on the other part of the game, you have these, there's five tracks and two tracks belong to the anarchists. They're kind of doing their own thing. And I, I appreciate that because they, they're doing, they really are historically doing their own thing. Uh, and so like liberty and collectivization, you know, that owning the means of production taken away from the official government, that's represented by a track. And then you have tracks that represent the control of actual government, uh, which is fought over between the communists and the moderates. And then they all have, the, each of them have their own, own support track. Uh, so that's the game. And in terms of what you're doing on your turn, you have a hand of cards, always have a hand of cards. There's lots of cards. Uh, and play a card and you can, it's a multi-use card. So you can either use your action points to do one of those things, or, uh, uh, or wait, you can use your action points to do one of those things and then form kind of a tableau. So kind of you're, you're building up over time. The more of these cards you play in a row, the more you can do. And I won't get yeah. into like everything that you can do, but you're basically building up. Or if you are behind on something, you can trash the card for its event. And that gives you like a big thing that you can do. Uh, but plus four collectivization, minus four Soviet support or, or whatever it is. So that's the kind of push and pull you're doing in the middle of the turn. So there's two push and pulls. One, what do you do with your card? Two, when I do something with my card, am I going to do the collective defense or am I going to go for my personal uh, track management? So that's going to be the overview of the game. I think that's uh, sufficient. Anything that I missed and like really important? Um, I just want to talk about how the Bag of Glory yes, prevents yes, you from... Okay, so the problem with most semi-cop games is that you end up with an attitude of, well, screw it, like, I'm not going to win. I'm <laughs> definitely going to lose, so let's just watch the world burn. <laughs> and so I actually think that Alex has done a really good job of helping to solve that problem because every time you do well, you're putting tokens of yours into the Bag of Glory but when you, at the end of each year, draw to see who's ahead, you don't actually know if it's your tokens that are going to come out. And there are multiple ways to get tokens in the bag. So even if you're having a hard time, you can like maybe try to get to the end of a track and get an award that lets you put something in the bag. There's a point in the game where you can outright bid to put something right on the actual track instead of into the bag. So you can get a guaranteed influence out there. Mm -hmm. um, you start with one in the bag. And so there's just, there are a lot of ways to kind of keep track of at least your odds of winning not being zero mm -hmm. um, and it helps keep you in the game all the way to the end because there's definitely the person who works the hardest and that's not the person who wins <laughs> or the person who gets the most tokens no. in the bag right so it's like yeah yeah that's totally true and it's in a regular semi-co-op game uh and that's why i hesitate to use that word because people have that stigma right i'm like oh semi-co-op boom, boom you're just gonna take the game like a dead of winter would be like the paradigm example of like oh I, I my side can't win or like from the trader i can't win so i'm just gonna you know make sure nobody wins and because the victory condition is hidden in the bag and because there is a chance a chance even if you get mauled in the game of like pulling enough of your tokens to win, you're in it. Or you have, at least you have incentive to be yeah. in it to the end. You can't like tr truly um, eradicate that problem, but they, there's a lot of mitigation for that. Yeah, like you might as well wait and see because it's totally possible for you to pull out a win after being the laziest bastard the entire game. Like, <laughs> or just you have such a hard time getting that edge and you feel like everybody's beating you. But as long as you've got something in there, you can win. Mm -hmm. Do it. So, yeah. So this is a three-player game. It's a straight-up yeah. three-player game, and in order to play one to three, 
uh, if you're playing two, you're playing one that is automated. And if you're playing solo, you're playing two that are automated. You can theoretically yeah. play all three automated just because, just because. And uh, you're, you're, there's no extra components. And so how the bot works is that when the, bot is, when the bot's turn is up, they play their card and they only play for their event. They, they don't play for their action points or anything like that. So it's like, okay, player goes, let's say it's a two-player game, the player will go, make the decisions, player will go, make the decisions. The bot, you flip a card, you do the event, the stronger thing. Right. Uh, because to kind of make up for the fact that the bot is dumb. So it's like, it's strong. That's, that's kind of how bots, um, automated bots work. It does this thing and then you kind of move on. Uh, and it, you know, it does the job of what the game wants it to do. Like it wants to pass the initiative token back and forth and it wants to defeat you on your tracks and there's priorities. Like, okay, if the, there's a confusion about where the bot goes, well, it does the thing that's worse for you. And here's the track that kind of, the, the, the flow chart that tells you, you know, what is actually worse for you. Uh, so yeah, so that's how, that's how it kind of works. The solo and I have a solo playthrough on the um, once that co-op shop. Yes, um, which will be linked in the, I'll link that in the notes. Excellent. Um, so you played at um, Circle DC with the designer. I did. I did. And, and okay. with David, who's the most selfish communist in the land. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually played this game several times. It was very well liked at my game group. Actually, everybody I've played it with really seems to like it, even though, so this is one of those things where we talked at the beginning about being like a Blue Panther game. It's not necessarily the fanciest components. And, you know, you don't have to off-gas them as much as, they, as you did earlier. Like they've changed their production so that the games are not as stinky when you open them up, yeah. which is very nice. Um, there's improvements on that end, mm -hmm. but you know, if you're looking for Stonemeyer production quality, don't, don't pick right. this, you know, I mean, if that's, if it's that or nothing for you, you won't be happy, mm -hmm. but the game has a certain magic about it. Like sure. everybody I play it with just gets really hooked. And there's something about it where it, yes, has this war and historical theme, mm -hmm. but it's not so difficult or so abstract that people can't connect to it. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those games and it makes me very happy. Um, but there's something about the semi-cooperative nature of it where you are wrangling with people about who should contribute here. And like, you know, we all mm -hmm. need to do this, but there are going to be moments where you're going to just see your advantage and look out for number one. And there are going to be times when you're like, yeah, I'm absolutely going to put soldiers into the war. Yeah, we're going to mm -hmm. cooperate, everybody. Teamwork bonus on. <laughs> and then you just do whatever you want. But the thing is that they can't totally get rid of you because they still need you. Right, right. And, and so it's um, it's hilarious. Like the level of interpersonal heat that this game generates is so great actually like because i've never played this and not end up being a smart aleck at somebody and like getting it right back <laughs> so we spoke about votes of women how that your core turn is play one card and you get the same thing here you're like you have random cards play one card and i appreciate yeah. that you play one card and, and there's a lot that happens with that card play but like okay play one card uh yeah. and so it manages to kind of like in that simple action give you a rich decision space. Once again, do you want to play the card for the building of the tableau? You know, get yourself to like five, six cards in that tableau, do a bunch of stuff on the board. Uh, or is it that time, right, to be selfish? And usually the event cards are the selfish cards. Like, okay, now I get to shoot up a track or I get to, you know, shoot someone else down a track or whatever it is. And it's like, Arr! you know, so if you're playing for that event card, that's, that's you know, speaking to that point of like you know, the magic of the game, like, you know, setting that up 
you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, the person is working so hard to get control of the government. You can see they're you know, they're progressing a little <laughs> four and eight track and they finally got over the thing and you go like four and eight minus four. What are you doing? It's yeah, so exactly. It's like, it's like, <laughs> yes, I finally got the, I finally got the, you know, the momentum here. It's mine. Ah. And then somebody else would be like, no, you don't. Right. No. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very funny. The more powerful event on the card is also the more selfish mm-hmm. usually yeah. Yeah. so if you play to your tableau then you're usually going to be sometimes the tableau can be really nice but um you know it, it's it usually gives you more flexibility to be kind to others whereas mm-hmm. the event might have something you really want but it also is not really going to have anything that other people want most of the time right. and so ooh, that temptation is so oh it's so strong like i have a really hard time being good mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I think that the idea of the uh, clearly optimal uh, play experience is three. I think Alex did so much and we refer to by first names. I mean, we were, again, once again, full disclosure, we're rooting for the, our community of people. And Alex is, you know, in, in our community of designs, the games that we want to design, like historical takes on stuff. Uh, yeah. So, you know, just this is his first game. I can't crazy. wait to see what it is. Man, it's such oh, a good crazy. first game. Like, yeah. I mean, I have the advantage of night, which is being my first game, but David's bajillionth. So like, I don't have that pressure. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. i can just blame david if something goes wrong yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah alex is i'm looking for, i'll look way for i'm gonna i'll play every game of his um anyway so uh so the ideal experience is three you once you go down to two and then the one then it starts to get a little bit dodgier and that, that makes us sad as solo gamers right um yeah. the, the the issue is exactly what i described with like how strong the events are that it's okay when a player does it because they can't do it again, generally. Like they, they got rid of that card. They, they, yeah. it's, it's gone. Um, and and the the bot events don't cycle, but like they're constantly doing powerful events to you. It's very very swingy, and you're just kind of like praying to the RNG gods that like you work so hard. Like I like to play the anarchist because that's just kind of my my thing. Uh, and I'm you're praying so hard that the, that the Soviets don't like play collectivization minus four, yeah. and that's it. Like that's all you can do is pray that the the card is it, you know not gonna know you. And okay, like eventually it will, but like if it happens early, it's devastating. If it happens after a series of like I've tried for five turns to kind of get where I'm gonna go, and then the bot kind of undoes it with like one card play, and yeah. that's where in terms of like um and that's where it comes to like those the track approach. So you're going back and forth in these tracks. And that represents your progress. And so for the bot to be able to wipe out possibly multiple turns of progress so easily and just knock you back on a track, it works. Like I've played it and it's fun, but it's not nearly the kind of fun that this game offers in the multiplayer. Yeah, it's really, you were, the solo is in, interesting. It is functional. Right, it's functional. And it, you're going to learn the history and you can even have quite a bit of fun with it. But- you gotta have three people. Like I said in my review, right? Like, yeah, it's okay for so it's good, you know. But three people, it's the three people mm-hmm. rage. Like, yeah, and it's precisely <laughs> that swinginess of the solo and the heaviness of the bot and the dumbness of the bot. And you know, we're both designers. And now we can kind of appreciate having a solo mode that doesn't add extra components. So I can see the attraction of that. Yeah. Oh, I don't have to add a components. I just played all the events. Right. The or making experience... it playable for two, I think, was also key here. Right. Uh, and and but the by approaching it that way, I think the play experience suffers a little bit because the, the bot will just sock you in the face. You can't do anything about it uh, sometimes. Or they won't sock you in the face and like, I won because I was lucky. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I echo what you said in your review, um, and, but I just wanted to kind of communicate that out to our audience here in the WhatsApp Co-op Shop that, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. It's it, The solo is okay. The the multiplayer is mwah, great. Love it. Yeah, it's the, the multiplayer is like straight up inspired. Straight, yep. <laughs> All cool. right, and then let's talk a little bit about uh, Stonewall Uprising so that we can then talk about them both together and kind of what yes. they're doing. So do you want me to take the description for this Go one? Go for it, Stonewall Uprising. All right. Stonewall Uprising by Taylor Schuss. It is a deck builder. It's basically a straight up deck builder. And yet, and yet, it will and make yet. you feel so many things. Uh, so it's a two player game, or you can play it one player against um, a bot, basically. Mm -hmm. And one side is going to be pride. And the other side is the man, because you are fighting for gay rights and the man is trying to keep you down. Mm -hmm. And so when you play, you are basically just playing cards that will move cubes along tracks. So there are three different tracks. More tracks. That represent More tracks. Let's, let's tracks all over the place. Lots of tracks uh, that represent different areas where pride can become more socially accepted. Like, is there going to be belief in personal freedom? Are we going to have, you know, um, support in a various, you know, political ways? Like you're, you're basically pulling, pushing and pulling these tracks. And the thing is that the uh, the man is also pushing and pulling on those tracks. And so when you hit your end zone on your track, it'll reset to the middle. So nobody ever ends up just stuck with somebody just milking the other end of the track. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, the tracks have really distinct benefits. So you can get more dice. If you are pride, um, you can move the Overton window. You can demoralized so i should say basically the win condition of the game for pride is that you want to get the overton window sufficiently open um that gay rights becomes accepted in society so the overton mm -hmm. window is basically just a sociological term for um what people consider normal and acceptable in a society and right. so you know i would say the overton window is much more open right now than it was in the 60s but mm -hmm. there are people who are trying to slam it closed on our fingers as we're pushing the window open. Um, uh, but then if you're the man, you want to detain and then demoralize pride cards from the pride player's deck. So it actually represents oppression. And then later in the game, there's also the possibility to win via AIDS deaths, which is super dark. And we'll talk more about that, but um, you know, it must, it must be discussed, but mm -hmm. basically you're pushing and pulling to either, you know, do things that oppress pride or to do things that give pride a boost. And um, yeah, I mean, it plays very much like a, a traditional deck builder. You've got cards in your hand, they have value, they have an action on them. Um, you push the cube, you do the action. However, there are some twists. One is the first person to fold um, puts interesting pressure on the other player because basically once you know, one of the players folds, the other one can keep playing cards and they're double in value, which is super great. But also every every one you play, your opposing player gets to pick up another card the next turn. Mm -hmm. And so you're giving them some card flexibility and advantage the longer you push. And the other thing is that you want to hold on to cards in your hand because you know how in a lot of deck builders you have like a currency card versus, you know, um, a, a attack card or something like that. Well, in this game, your cards are both. So basically you can be using the value of your card on the tracks to push one direction or another. Um, or you can be saving the value of those cards to buy better cards. So if you have more card draw, even if you don't want to play all those cards, you can use those cards to buy, which you're going to want to do. Get those good cards. So it's deck building with some twists, but it really does feel like a traditional deck builder. And yet I find this game very emotionally affecting 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe because of the titles on the cards and the way they're depicted. So I mentioned my review, like the pride cards are so bright. They're beautiful in the sense that like, it's just like all these different people looking happy and they're celebrating and it's like real historical figures and like real societies. That, Marsha you know, P. Marsha P. Johnson. I love her. It's so good. And then if you look at the the man on the other side, this is very deliberate, right? But everything's dull and gray, lots of shadowy figures. It's mm-hmm. like, ooh, fear of communism. Ooh, you know, televangelism. You know, ooh. Um, Pat Robertson. You know, <laughs> how will this affect the war? Um, and so, right. you know, it's, it's very interesting because playing the man is very deliberately made into like a bleak, kind of horrid experience. And I think it should be, mm-hmm. but it also is is, you know, very much chess's vision of who's right how it should feel um how you look if you're sitting around oppressing gay people and trying to stop them from having rights mm-hmm. um you know the game is a very clear statement about whose movement is beautiful and free and something special and whose side is bleak and drab right and does not want the best for this world Right. So like, I mean, just as a counterpoint, so we just talked about land of freedom with the three factions, like it could have made, say, the Soviets, you know, to be this kind of, you know, iron bleak faction or whatever it is. But the the land of freedom made this specific choice, like, okay, these are no, these are three factions, right? And they're kind of co-equal and then a little bit asymmetric, but like, you know, there's no necessarily bad feeling about playing any faction. Here, the game wants you to feel bad about playing the man. And it's that sounds interesting like it seems like it would be a put off and there was a solo mode because of that ex- exact issue of that automa deck and it's the solo mode's an automa deck like it does a lot of what the man does just you know dumber and stronger <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. um and, and and it's unfair we'll get to that in a little bit um but no i think that it's very um a very intentional choice and a very smart choice to make players uncomfortable playing the man and you know put them in a position of like okay no you are going to try to win and I want you to sit with, I want you to know what you did. <laughs> Look what you did. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Look what you are doing. Thing, <laughs> right. And another thing that um, in terms of the deck building, there's also a deck chronicle deconstruction uh, mechanism where like the man can kind of take cards away from pride. So like if these certain cards are played, uh, you know, either the pride plays them or the man plays them like they, you know, and actually it's more like the tracks are hitting. So like you hit those certain points in the track, then the man can take cards away from you. And you can, they can detain them, which gives the player a chance to get them back or demoralize them, which is you're, you're at the game. Yes. And so that's where a lot of the poignancy comes from. I, I always, I call this a poignant game. Uh, this isn't a, a belly laugh, haha game. This is a very poignant game. Yes. And so having, and so I think that's where a lot of the poignancy is. I'm like, there's so much color in the card. You get, you can get kind of invested, uh, but the man can take those cards away. And pride can't do that. Pride doesn't take anything away. Pride is just trying to, push the tracks and maximize what they're doing. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I will say though, so yeah, it makes sense to have an automa so that people don't have to play the man. I kind of feel like unless you are already traumatized by the man's activities in your personal life, that you should. Like as a cis straight white woman, um, I found it very upsetting to play the man. I also feel like I should. Does that make sense? Like at yeah. least once you have to do it because I think that thinking about how your actions are perceived in that role is, right. is really important. Right. Um, yeah. I, I would say that if you've already, you know, um, been traumatized in your personal life, maybe you don't want to do that. Right. I, I mean, full disclosure, I've played this. This is I, because of the pandemic, my gaming and therapy is way down. I've played this game in therapy. 
Uh, really? I played it with a um, a young woman who was transitioning. Uh, and of course, I'm never going to let them play the man, but I played the man uh, and they played pride and they were able to kind of, because they, they tapped into their own struggle in transitioning. Because I, I, I live in a blue state, Connecticut, but I kind of live in a red, uh, work in a red bubble within that blue state. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the acceptance has been difficult as she transitions and she's in high school right now. And to be able to like in the in the the safety bubble of a play experience for her to play her cards and you know have her allies basically you're playing your allies right uh and to have a human person kind of playing the quote-unquote man yeah but she was able to kind of tap into some like difficult things like yeah f you you know all that kind of thing where doing that against the bot is okay but doing that against yeah. a human person and there's that consent to be like, okay, I'm going to say F you to this person. And I'm only saying F you to this character in this uh, circle. That was actually kind of interesting and poignant and powerful for me. So, and that's yeah. a very interesting thing to say about a game. It really is. Yes. I mean, I think we're, you know, we've been in a golden age of the gaming hobby for a while, but I think we're really entering the golden age of games that do something mm -hmm. to you emotionally while you play. Right. And that's something that Land of Freedom can't give you because Land of Freedom doesn't do that. It doesn't, it wants to do the asymmetric. It's a, it's a lot of, it's a head game and all that kind of stuff here. They're yeah. really going for the, 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 the gut and you needed to highlight that villain aspect. That's yes. the key is to highlight the villain aspect in order to reach that level of poignancy. So handle with care. We, we're saying like, oh, if this is something you just drop in and you know, here you go, uh, you have some LGBT yeah. or somebody play the man, there has to be a lot of attention done. But if that intention is there, then there can be a lot, a lot to get yes. out of this game. Yes, I would say that this is one of those games that I love it. I think it's great. I would not just plop this down Absolutely. with a random game partner and play it. Um, I don't think it's a good idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because you just don't know what you're going to bring out um, right. of yourself and of the other person when you play it. And that's that's a compliment to the game. Mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, just like you wouldn't be like, here, read Heart of Darkness, sweet child, and like hand it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you gotta, you gotta like think about who you're playing this with and like who's playing which side. There has to be some, yeah, an intentional approach right. so that this game is, it does the most benefit. It is the most informative with the least agony. Uh, so I, I have one issue to kind of talk about from a mechanical perspective purely uh, as the game goes on. So when you when you first begin the game, your deck is small and you're making little progress in the track. Then you get your improved cards and the enemy, either, either the enemy or the bot, because the bot is tiered. So like you yeah. know, air one, air two, air three and stronger as you go down. Um, the game gets really swingy towards the end. So it's like here you go, you know, I, I progress seven on a track and then that's basically enough to get you to the end zone and back. So it's like, it can feel a little bit like, like on a, like a, like a rocking ship, right? Like, whoa. You know? And you're kind of like riding the lightning towards the end, as opposed yeah. to feeling like you're truly in control. And that is valid. I imagine that's totally intentional. Like they didn't, they don't, um, the designer doesn't want you to feel like you're in perfect control because that's not how the people felt. They didn't yes. feel like they were in control because things kind of got out. Of, you know, the AIDS crisis happened in the 80s. That's the climax of the game. And so if things are very fraught and there's that back and forth. So I imagine the, the the game experience is that they want to put you in that kind of very swingy, backlashy, you know, yeah. like, huge progress and huge uh, move back. And you're trying to just kind of like um, do enough 
on your turn on your turn to make your little progress, get your dice and roll on that, that give do that uh, victory roll. So yeah. that I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying it's like that that took me by surprise when it happened. And it's, it's something to kind of watch for in terms of your own game experience, where a similar yeah. land of freedom is very it's inches and it's inches the whole time for the right. most part, unless you play like an event here, the whole last round is like wham, 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 and you know you know, heads up. <laughs> That's yeah. you know, your game experience. The other thing that's interesting about it is that, so as you pull things into the um, end zone and then you, you know, get the reward for that, you know, you can only do that so many times per decade, basically. Right. Um, and then you'll move on. Uh, but the person who basically gets their stuff into the end zone the most times will get a special card that gives them further advantages going forward. So the other thing is that, um, you know, if you start weak, and then the other player starts strong. They're just going to get stronger. There is mm. not, it, the game is not built to correct that. The game is built to amplify mm-hmm. that. And so I think that there are obviously historical and social reasons for that to be the case. But at the same time, um, the you know, if that yeah, yeah, causes sure. you pain, especially if you're sitting there watching pride get stomped, mm. it does feel very bad. And I accept that as part of the game. But I can see, you know, this that making something that's already sort of emotional more right. difficult. Yeah, I mean, there, there's that knife edge that we talk about a lot with these games where you want to put people in the position and feel the feelings, but then there's a game experience thing. And uh, as a game experience, that runaway leader issue that you're talking about, and I did notice that too, uh, there's, there's, ways to be, there's ways to catch up. Like if you get, you know, um, if you feel, focus on certain tracks and whatever, right. like it's not like hopeless, but it does the is the, more difficult to catch up yeah. in this game. And yes, like that's part of the deal when it comes to these historical momentum type things. But is that a fun play experience? Not everybody's going to experience that as fun. Yeah. I do want to point out that with both of these games that we've talked about, um, they both just made me feel so happy about game design and where it's going. Mm. Not because they are flawless, but because they take very normal gaming mechanisms and then turn them into something that is extremely affecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, really, I mean, Stone Uprising is just a deck builder. It's very deck buildery. It doesn't mechanically feel that different from any other deck builder. Mm-hmm. All you had to do is put different art on the cards and say the tracks meant certain things mm. and give names to those cards. And then suddenly it's like, I mean, the way that Taylor does it, he does it just right. So that it will play in a way that's very familiar. But as you as you play it, the emotional ride is wild. And like the same thing with Land and Freedom, you know, it's it's not as grim, right, as mm-hmm. as as Stonewall Uprising, but it really does a great job of kind of highlighting the need to work together, but also wanting to be first among equals. Mm-hmm. And the way that the game brings that out of you and creates that within the game space is just awesome, considering that really it's just a turn where everybody plays one card. There's like some little chits out there on the map. Like you would think that it's so rinky-dink and simple. And yet from these components, something really special emerges. Mm-hmm. And like everybody who's been into a game has experienced that. But I'm happy to start seeing historical games that are really producing those experiences in the service of meditating and reflecting on history. Mm-hmm. So and we want to point that out. I mean, obviously, we both we love we we like these games 
even love those games on at certain player counts and with certain caveats, right? L- like like the games overall, love with caveats. I think that's uh, you know, and yeah. ha- have to be in the right circumstance. Three players for land of freedom, and you know, informed consent. You know, group with a uh, um, um, so uprising. So that's where we are. Um, as historical gamers, we bring a lot to the games, and even if we don't know the time, the the historical time period. We know enough about the general sweeps of history and we, we we kind of fill in the gaps, right? And so these two games in particular, they accomplish what they accomplished through the use of tracks. Yes. And it's very abstract. It just tells you AIDS deaths, track one, two, three, four, or five, or collectivization, which is this huge thing of like, you know, taking the, you know, production of, of like we take ownership of land for granted, but it's like collectivization of land. Like there's no ownership anymore. It's all the people owning. So like, it's a huge concept that I'm totally into, but it's a track. And so it's hard for us to say, because we do as historical humans put in so much, but what would you say in terms of, you know, is that a good way is it too abstract? Is it is it make itself niche for people like us who can put ourselves in there? Or do you feel like the track approach is a fruitful thing even for people who might not, who, who might be even less interested by the history than we are? Ooh, I think this is a, you know me, I'm not good at just one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> so <Dodge>. I think <laughs> I think that tracks are okay as long as they are there in service of you streamlining the game down to create the emotional experience that you specifically were looking for. Mm -hmm. I sort of feel like it's more a matter of emphasis because you can't emphasize everything. Like if Land and Freedom were a book, maybe there'd be a chapter about why the anarchists have the tracks they do and why the communists have the tracks they do and why the moderates have the tracks they do. But because you're doing it in game form, the more you abstract, the more room you do leave for the other things that you wanted to flesh out. Like, I Mm -hmm. think, for example, in Land and Freedom, you could quibble about the tracks and the way they're set up, but that would be a different game if you wanted to fully flesh them out and bring that part out. Uh, Because the essence of the game is vying for control while also trying to survive together. Mm And so everything needs to be abstracted in order to bring that experience to the forefront. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to communicate something different, maybe something else would have to go on a track. But, you know, if you want the game to be playable, if you want the game to not have rules that are 100 pages long, if you want the game to bring out specifically the experience that you want the players to have, something has to go. And Mm -hmm. I view the tracks as that choice. It's the thing that had to still be present, but be abstracted in order for you to have the game experience that the designer intended. Right. For me, the, I mean, I'm so glad you like kind of identified kind of the core experience, right? It's a, so there's so much you could say about all these time periods and like a game like John Company, right? Has the expanded room to be able to say multiple things multiple times. Here's how you felt here, da, 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 da. You can explore all these things. Um, I think what the tracks are trying to accomplish is they're trying to distill a core experience, yeah. not saying a bunch of things, saying like one or two things. And the way that each game links the tracks to something you care about, like a card. So Stonewall Uprising is is right there. So, you know, the systemic support track, you move down one. And if you're the man, 
then there's no systemic support. And guess what? Your card gets taken, kind of like the man is arresting you because the system's against you. And then if you take that back as a player, the pride player, then you are freeing that person. The, the, the laws are to, to their benefit. And they go out. So like the fact that, you know, Taylor made this specific uh, thing. I'm like, okay, care about the cards and styled the tracks such that the car, you know, it, it, this is the way that which we play with these cards and create extra stakes, right? So it, it could have been a bigger game. It could have accomplished more, said more. There's a lot more to say, but I think yeah. the tracks ended up being effective in like distilling what it is saying down to that core and making it about that core tension tug of war, et cetera. Yes. If that makes yes. sense. Right. Yes. It's, you know, it's basically like if you're writing a novel, right? Parts of the novel that are happening in the background have to stay in the background in order for you to help the um, characters, right? Have the story that you're trying to tell about them. Right. And, you know, you can have something that's set against the backdrop of like, I'm reading the um, Sharp novels uh, right now. They're Richard, they're Bernard Cornwell series about like a British soldier. And he starts out in India, but we're up into the Napoleonic Wars now. And mm-hmm. so... You know, I'm really looking forward to him giving the Napoleonic army some hell. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the books have great battle scenes. They're very they're fun. Um, at times they stretch history to put Sharp at different battles. Like there's Sharp's Trafalgar, I actually think is a weaker novel in the series, but they just really wanted to have Sharp at the Battle of Trafalgar. And I get it. Um, yeah. But um, it's, uh, it's you know there's a lot politically going on and socially going on that you don't see only enough of the actual history to enrich sharp's story appears in the novel right right and i think that that is also true like i think games as historical fiction is like a legitimate thing to start talking about at this point Mm -hmm. um that you know you have to choose which things like get attention and which things don't in order to tell the story you want to tell that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you get to leave out really key historical things um you know as i'm sure you and i will talk about in future and you know upcoming videos about other games <laughs> <laughs> in about 20 minutes <laughs> yes i don't know what order they're all gonna run in but uh we're about to everybody record a, a review of jerusalem on domini with dan throw so well, look or look for various media that was recorded this particular Saturday morning in June. <laughs> awesome. But um, you know, that doesn't mean that you get to do the history a disservice or that you get to leave out key things that would actually really impact your story. Um, if you 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 can't lie about history through omission and mm-hmm. have it still be good, but okay. you can certainly, I think, abstract. Right. And I, I so they're both doing different things. So in a way, it's a little bit of a clutch to kind of talk about them at once. But I think the drawing the contrast is interesting. I think the the fact that Stonewall Uprising highlights the villains so much gave me just that way more emotional investment. So like the tracks really came alive for me yes. in a way where in Land of Freedom, it felt like a little bit of mathematical exercise and the gameplay and the 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 sauce didn't come from any emotional like historical emotional experience it came yes. from okay cooperative or competitive like, okay am i going to help everybody that's a very much kind of a in game type of emotion that neither one is better or worse but in terms of like you know folks exploring historical gaming um i got way more of the feelings of the emotional actor from Stonewall Uprising yeah, I did from Land of Freedom. In Land of Freedom, I got more of the just like uh, you know I'm playing a game with my friends type. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I did get good sort of politicking vibes from Land and Freedom in the sense that you do have to negotiate. Yes. Um, sure. That I really enjoyed. And I liked that, you know, you get to pick your card, but you don't actually have to say which part of the card you're playing the card for until it's your turn. So, you know. Yeah, what are you, you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> like, ooh, how bad do I want to mess up the third person who's going? Right. Was I relying on them for anything? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways it's good not to have the initiative and to go last because then other people have to like not make you too mad throughout the course of the turn or else or else um yeah. <laughs> but um yeah i i do think that in stonewall uprising like actually asking people to oppress gay people as you know represented by pushing a cube down a track but you still have to actively be like, yes, I'm mm. going to drag public support for you in this direction. Right. Where I'm going to put your not... nice looking card in jail. Yeah. Like, look, I'm going to take this like beautiful, happy card of these people celebrating their lives and just let's try right. to demoralize it too. <laughs> let's get out of here. Right. Like it feels bad. <laughs> Yeah, and sure. it's hard to watch it happen to you too when you're the when you're the pride player because you're like oh no no mm-hmm. not them how do I make it happen no. <laughs> yeah so I think at the end of the day I mean both of these games are good examples of taking a large historical reality and distilling down an experience and if yes. you want more of that then you know there's large reading lists in both of the books and everything uh, but I I found that in terms of filling in one particular. Uh, emotional experience, one particular aspect of whatever the, the conflict was. I thought these games both accomplished a lot. And I look yes. forward to more, uh, it, more in the, along this track. I, do n- I don't need historical games that are like giant, you know, <laughs> things or anything, like theses, basically. Uh, yeah, this, is a mu- this is a very much a valid way to pursue uh, historical gaming. And I look forward to, de- definitely look forward to more development here. Me too. Me too. I think that these games are really representative of um, the current cutting edge of what we can do with historical games. And I'm excited for them as they are. And I'm excited for the growth in our sector of the hobby they're going to represent. Absolutely. All right. So for now, uh, we're going to wrap this particular recording, but be looking out for more fun stuff from us throughout the summer. Um, I am Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire. You can find me anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. Jason, where can you be found? Twitter, Stuff Stories, GBL, uh, Facebook, me, Jason. <laughs> uh, uh, BGG, a lot of people hit me up with BGG, Pope Six This, uh, and my channel, YouTube. Uh, youtube.com slash self stories also on the one-stop co-op shop uh which would you wrap up by happy fun times stuff uh so yeah no I, i'm all over the place very open to interact with y'all folks it's awesome every time it happens fantastic all right so for those of you out there please like subscribe to all of our outlets uh comment ask questions and most of all happy gaming later everybody thanks for joining us again for the one-stop co-op shop podcast Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.